flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, decisions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become, con become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. Phenomenal. Hey, feel free to have a seat. And as you're grabbing your seat, turn to your neighbor, ask them how their day has been. Maybe ask them their favorite uh, caffeinated beverage as of lately. I've been on a matcha kick. Anyone a matcha fan in the house tonight? Yeah, all five of us standing in solidarity for matcha. Well, hey, let me uh, open us up in a word of prayer. We'll jump into the word. Cool? Father, thank you for this night. Thank you for gathering us all here in this space, Lord. Father, I thank you for just the time of worship. I thank you for um, all those who have shown up tonight in the midst of busy school schedules and work schedules. Lord, I just pray tonight that uh, we're able to, from learning from your word, able to dig deeper in your character and see your heart for us, Lord. Lord, I pray uh, over distractions and hindrances and barriers that those things may be lowered and that we may just lean in tonight, Father, to what you want to say and what you want to speak. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, I don't know uh, if you've been to a traditional arcade recently. The only traditional arcade I can think of that you may have been to is maybe like Chuck E. Cheese. And unless you have kids, being 18 to like 30 years old in Chuck E. Cheese is not a good vibe. Okay, it's not the place to take someone on a first date. In case you're wondering, okay, don't go to Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, but if you've ever been to a traditional arcade, they're kind of irrelevant now. But the way a traditional arcade works out is you bring some coins and you transition those coins to arcade coins. You put them in a machine and then you get to play a video game that's like really low grade and what they call like vintage, but it's not really that cool of a video game, for like five minutes and then you have to spend more money to play the game some more, okay? It's a really outdated whack system and I don't know why anyone would play arcade games anymore, but hey, all people are welcome in this space. Um, and there's one arcade game in particular that's always baffled me a little bit. I've always been curious about where its origin came from, what the premise is. Uh, it's a game by the name of Whack-A-Mole, okay? We have a photo of the game console that we'll throw up. It's called Whack-A-Mole, okay? Um, and the main premise of this game is this. These little plastic vermin shoot out of these little slots, and you have to hit them with a hammer 
as hard as you possibly can and as quick as you can. The reasoning, nobody knows, okay? Nobody knows why we are hitting innocent little rats on an arcade game, okay? We don't know where they came from. They could be fleeing a crisis from another country, but we're just hitting them with a hammer. They, they could be just wanting to look for work, but we're just hitting with them with a hammer, okay? And we're just deciding out of nowhere to ruthlessly just obliterate these little rats as quick as we can, okay? It's kind of a demented, psychotic game, all right? And I think Grand Theft Auto has some roots in whack-a-mole, okay? I'm just going to say that up front, all right? Any Grand Theft Auto fans in the house, you know what I'm talking about. But if I could describe my week to you, if I could detail how this week has felt for me, if I could be honest and vulnerable for a second, I feel like my life has felt a little bit like the game Whack-A-Mole this week. And, and I'm not talking about I'm the person winning at the game, like I'm just crushing it, literally. Um, I wouldn't say uh, in any other way do I relate to the game except to the little moles getting just compressed and pushed into the ground by some unknown force in their life. I relate with the moles and whack-a-mole, okay? Um, this week, I have really sensed and felt for some reason that there's been this over-encumbering and, and almost oppressive force in my life from car troubles to physical health troubles. I sounded like Barry White for half the week because my voice was gone, okay? So just from just being absolutely sick. I was facing relationship issues with different people in my life. I was having struggles with friends. I was facing workplace issues. And uh, I would say, as, as the children call it, this week was on one, okay, for me personally. Um, and I'm curious if at some point for each of us, whether it's been a day or this week as well for you, or this month or this year, if we were honest for a moment, a little bit vulnerable, and we asked ourselves a question, if we feel like we've been crushed by life, if we sense the pressure of life, if we sense the pressure of expectations of friends, if we sense the responsibilities required from us to just exist, and it feels a little bit crushing. You know, it can be really overwhelming to be human at times. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Yeah, resonating like amen from the front row. We need to pray for this front row, y'all. Um, it can be overwhelming to be human. It can be frustrating. The tragedy we each experience in our lives varies from person to person. But if we were all in unison, we'd all agree that it just takes a lot to survive. It takes a lot to balance friendships. It takes a lot to balance work. It takes a lot to balance school. And now, I don't know, maybe school's irrelevant. We're still talking about that. Is school irrelevant? I don't know. Everyone's going to school, but nobody's using school and work. But everyone's going to school and spending money to go get a job, but then the job doesn't pay for the school. It's frustrating, okay? It's a little difficult. It, it, it's hard to relegate your life. It's hard to keep up with just the pace of information we're presented as people. The amount of tasks we have to complete in order to stay alive and live well and comfortably feels overwhelming, especially at this time and season of our lives. Life can have this very intense, monotonous, droning tone to it. And I, and I found in my own life, and in the lives of friends and loved ones and, and just people in general, when life is hardest, when circumstances are most pressing, when, when the pressure is, is coming in at the highest pace, the greatest temptation we face as people is to distract ourselves from the pain and the struggle and suffering of everyday life. It can, this, this can take its form in many ways. 
We can find ourselves in the rhythm of distraction on a weekly basis. It can be anything from mindlessly doom scrolling on social media, maybe stalking your ex on there, okay? Um, it could be gossip with a friend that debilitates the image of someone you know. It, it's fun. It feels good to kind of uplift yourself by playing down somebody else. It can even be just isolation and escapism through entertainment that places you with no genuine connection to other people. There are a million things we utilize as individuals to numb and distract ourselves. And we just had read to us a portion out of the book of Galatians. And, and Paul, the author of Galatians, is pleading with his church a statement that I believe resonates then as much as it resonates now. And, and if you could summarize Paul's statement, what, what he's pleading with his church for, it's this. Distraction won't produce obedience. Distraction won't produce obedience, specifically in the life of a follower of Jesus, if you want to put a little asterisk. And particularly in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 20, there is a list cited by the author of this book, a man by the name of Paul. And Paul's story is simple. If you want to understand Paul, it's this. He hated Christians until he became one, okay? <laughs> I, can, I can relate. Before I followed Jesus, I did not know what it was all about, okay? I, I was seeing little candles in the store with little pictures of Jesus. I thought that's what it meant to follow Jesus. I was watching like VeggieTales outside the faith. VeggieTales is like just goaded though, to be honest. VeggieTales is amazing. But I remember being outside the faith and feeling so frustrated about Christians until I became one and I finally got it. And Paul for him is the same story. He persecuted church, he hated the church. And he's been neck deep in explaining and arguing against teachers who are trying to undermine the gospel to this Galatian church. The argument is simple. All the teachers are trying to produce within this Galatian church is say, hey, Jesus was there. Jesus died for your sins. That's good and all. But in order to really be made right with God, you actually have to follow the Old Testament Torah. And you actually have to do all those things in the law. And then God will finally like you. And Paul makes the case that you don't need to do that. That So in preparation for his opponent's argument, Paul begins to set up the next portion of his statement by saying, okay, you don't have to follow the Old Testament Torah, but how does somebody know how to live right if it's not just by simple rule following? Paul creates a tension of two human realities, two opposite potentials Paul, Paul draws. He draws bet between two ideas and two states of being that we exist in as people Paul starts with the flesh, and if you could define the flesh in biblical terms, it's a temporary state of being controlled by impulse and short-term thinking. It's a temporary place of being controlled by impulse and short-term thinking. This is our natural disposition as people. And the spirit is the other tension Paul presents, and the spirit is this, the gift Jesus gives those who follow him, enabling a new motive and way of life. And actually, who Paul is addressing are those who would have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he includes when the flesh controls the believer, they now know and understand what it's like to live outside of just impulse and immediate desire. And that the old way of life that they're used to living doesn't work anymore. That there's a new way of life that Jesus has introduced by his spirit that is the correct way to live. And it's one or the other. It's not both and. It's not like, hey, I'm going to get a little bit of my flesh here on Tuesday. Then Wednesday, we're going to operate in the spirit. Then back on Thursday, Paul's saying, it's either you're operating by the spirit or you're operating by the flesh. You're either operating by your own impulse and desire or you're following after what God desires for you. Because the two ideas end up contradicting each other ultimately. 
And where the religious teachers come into this conversation is they're making the case, if there is a right way to live and a wrong way to live, again, how do we know that difference? How do we understand as people on a fundamental level what's right and wrong? If you want to draw philosophically what Paul is saying, Paul is just concluding good versus evil. Now, I, I assume most of us in the room tonight come from a place of faith or a background of faith. We have some kind of level of Christian understanding of good and evil. You may not, and that's okay. We're glad you're here. But in understanding this difference, it, it can be almost tension-filled and hard in this cultural moment to understand that there's good and there's evil. It, it kind of seems like you're railing against the cultural norm to claim objective right and wrong. And what Paul is drawing upon is that there is a right and a wrong way to live life. If there's a right and a wrong way to live life, how do we know the difference? Their proposition, these religious leaders' proposition is you can't know. The only way you can know right and wrong is just follow the Old Testament Torah, listen to every single rule and rhythm and stigma, and then in following these rules and rhythms, you'll know right and wrong and that's it. And this is a, an idea that has permeated throughout all of history. Most religious institutions follow this idea. All they believe is we really can't make our way to heaven, so we just have to try our best to get to heaven. And so at the end of our days, we're just going to have to tally up the right and the wrong committed against us and that we do. And so hopefully our good deeds outweigh our bad. We don't know. Hopefully God, whoever he is, wherever he is, is nice to us because of that. This is religious thinking. Jesus' vision for humanity, however, is so much more compelling and beautiful than simply mindless, numbing rule following. The New Testament does have warnings for followers of Jesus and those outside of God's grace of what a way of life contrary to living for God produces in somebody's life and where they ultimately end up. And Jesus made it easily known that following him is hard, that following him is challenging, that it is difficult, well, not many will. Yet when reading this passage, we can arrive at a lot of notions and ideas. We can, we can come with kind of predisposed opinions and perspectives about what we believe to be true of this portion of scripture. And what I want to do right now is I want to reread this list. I want to ask us to simply listen. Simply listen. And when I read this list, I want you to think about, don't say it out loud, but think about what comes to mind for you when this list is read. It's this. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. When I've read this, I wonder what our initial thoughts are. I wonder what initially comes to mind when I read these words off this page. I wonder maybe shame comes to our mind. I wonder if maybe self-piety comes to our mind, how much we don't resonate with that list. I wonder how much of our past feels boiling to the surface. I wonder if we're thinking of a person or thinking of a cultural moment, culture wars going on right now. If you want to really call this list what it is, it's first of all sin, but truly at the heart of what this list is, it's distractions. It's distractions. Uh, let me explain. I want to say this. When it comes to distractions, don't trust the distraction. Don't trust the distraction. Simply said, this list according to Paul is a list of how we as humans tend to distract ourselves. Yet distractions from what is a really good question. 
Um, for the audience receiving this letter written by Paul, their context would look a little different from ours, okay? More sandals in the room, maybe, okay? But the same condition of humanity would have been the same. What, what I've understood in studying history and learning about people is that humans are technology advances, but the way we are and the things we want really don't change that much through time. Wouldn't you agree? Um, honestly, if you could boil down what people want out of life, three things, okay? The three things everybody's looking for life, why everyone is attending self-help sem seminars, reading all these different books, maybe why you're attending tonight, trying to seek this. There's three things people really just want in life. These three things are this, okay? To be in a relationship to those around them to some level, to some degree. To have time doing what they love. And to leave some kind of impact on their surroundings, either immediate or global. varies from person to person. But if you could really simplify what people want out of life, it's these three things. This is why people do anything. This is why Frida Kahlo painted, okay? This is why Mike Tyson bought a tiger, okay? Th this is why Steve Jobs invented the iPhone. Th this is why any person throughout history has done what they do. This is why LeBron James keeps changing teams, okay, you guys? Like, people desire these three aspects of life in some way, and we could recategorize it, reskin it as something else. But everyone is seeking after these three things to some level. If you take that equation, mix it up any which way, this is the human condition. This is the human perspective on what life is about, what life is composed of. And anytime there's a hindrance to these three things, anytime these three things in our lives get out of order, we don't get what we want, we feel disconnected from other people, we don't get to spend time doing what we love due to circumstances and conditions, responsibilities, we don't feel like we're leaving much impact on our surroundings, we begin to get frazzled. We begin to get frustrated. And in times of hindrance and limitation to what we, what we believe should be accessible, what we believe is our right as people, we like to try to take shortcuts in life. We, we like to try to take shortcuts to get to these destinations. And I believe one of these shortcuts is the method of distraction, this list Paul just cited. See? Life is difficult. We've established that already, okay? And when life is difficult, we begin to believe the lie that life will be a little bit easier if we distract ourselves. Life will be a little bit better to make it through if we can almost satiate and numb ourselves with something on the side. But these distractions, according to Paul, are an old route that don't work in the life of a believer. The life of a believer has produced a new life in someone. And these methods of getting what we want, feeling good, being distracted, as I like to say, do not work in the new life of a believer. This list comes as a response to these two tensions Paul is drawing and has observed in the life of a person trying their best to follow Jesus. Something important to understand is Paul is communi communicating to followers of Jesus. Paul is not communicating to the Areopagus. Paul is not communicating to Greco-Roman society. Hear ye, hear ye, Greco-Roman society. You need to stop being so bad, okay? Paul is not doing that. Paul is not concerned with what's going on in society. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. That's God's role. Expel the wicked person from among you. No, when I see this list, Paul is talking to believers. Paul is talking to a group of Christians who have followed the ease of distraction. Paul is communicating this idea. And when I read this, this is what I get from this. Who I was and tend to fall back to 
in the tension of who I am becoming and who I want to be. This is the constant battle we face while following Jesus. There's, there's a place we've come from, a person we were that we did not like, that we don't like now, that Jesus saved us out of, he rescued us out of that, and now we're growing to become more like him, and we want to be more like him, hence why we follow him, hopefully that's why you follow Jesus. But we're not where we should be yet. And there is this tension in the life of a believer. And when I read this list, I think of what I, as a person, am tempted to return to while following Jesus. The list covers all methods of distraction. Everything from sexual immorality, which if you want to define that, it's any paradigm or relationship that is outside God's original plan for humanity. All the way to something as crazy and interesting as the word witchcraft. And, and get this, this word witchcraft, the original Greek word is pharmakeia. It's where we get the word pharmacy. And it's actually alluding to how people at ancient times would build their temple, temples over fault lines. When these fault lines would break, what people would do is certain substances and chemicals would rise up from this fault line, making people high and hallucinating to worship some god. It's also in the talking of mixing potions to produce an effect or an altered state of mind. So this is covering everything from sexual immorality, fornication, hooking up with somebody, sleeping around, watching pornography, all the way to relying on a substance or a narcotic or some drug to alter our state of mind. Paul is not pulling any punches in this list. And if you want to get more specific, the Old Testament and New Testament authors, in the words of Jesus, would refer to these things, these items, these moments, these actions, as sin. Sin is thrown around so much throughout culture and, and within circles, and it's been dumbed down a lot, and I think it's kind of lost its potency in our day and age. We hear the word sin, and either we just like roll our eyes, or we think of like a street preacher. And, and sin is, all sin is this. Sin is falling short or missing the mark of God's expectation for what it means to be human. See, Yahweh, in the beginning, originally crafted humanity with a beautiful vision. The, the same reason God made humanity, we wonder this question, is, is the same reason artists paint. It, it's the same reason architects make buildings. He, he did it because he loves us. And it was an expression, an extension of himself. And he crafted this beautiful vision for who people are and what we should be. He defined humanity, but in our attempt of what we think humanity should be, we diverted from his plan, his blueprint. And so now we've redefined what it means to be human, hence why we say the phrase, well, I'm only human. The original concept of human is God's invention, not ours. And it ultimately, what we have done is we've begun to distract ourselves and pull ourselves away from God's original and ultimate plan. And I love that Paul doesn't keep the, light, the, t the list really tight and specific and niche. He said, and this is it, you know, nothing else people really struggle with. If you don't struggle with anything on this list, you're good, my friend. You are just like, just like Jesus, I guess. No, he says, and things like these. He says, and you know what? Any self-pious people in the room? You too. Anything, any, anything similar to this, you're in the list too. It's almost as if Paul understood that self-piety, self-righteousness, Elevating ourselves above other people, thinking we're better than the person sitting next to us, has been around since the beginning of time. So just in case there's readers in the room or people in the room when Paul was reading this, and people would read the list and kind of start bubbling up a little bit and say, yeah, those people. Yeah, those sexually immoral. Yeah, those people who attend those parties and have orgies. Yeah, those people who do witchcraft. Yeah, I'm not one of those people. Paul says anything like this anything like this. 
And if you were to simplify what Paul is proposing, it's not an exhaustive description of, okay, God's going to get to the end of your life and he's going to tally up, okay, how many times did you fornicate? Okay, 32 times. Oh, I don't know. You only tied 10. Sorry, you can't get in. But God's not going to get this list and kind of be reading over it like Santa Claus, like, I don't know, or were you naughty or nice? Did you make it in? No, no, no. This is the question God cares about of our lives. What did you believe to be true and what did you trust? What did you believe to be true and what did you trust? Did you trust me and my way of life? Ultimately, you may have faltered, you may have failed, you may have floundered, but ultimately trusted in me. Or did you trust in your own ways, your own motives, your own conscription to make life what you made of it? What did you trust in? See, our natural response as people is to take this list and to trust it. But this list is distraction from what God has for us. Especially when it comes to following Jesus, we can believe and begin to believe, and the longer you follow Jesus, it seems that this almost permeates more and more, that God at some point is holding out on us. This list seems really fun initially. This list to a, a long-term believer can be tempting to believe that God's plan, it's not really working out what you said. Your friends are having fun. Your friends are doing what they want. People around you are, are, are feeling gratified and finding their true selves while you're denying yourself and you're trying to stay obedient and humble. And you can begin to believe the lie that God's holding out on you. But with anybody who is mature or immature at something, we talked about this last week, the same applies to when we follow Jesus. That there's, there's actually stages to our faith and discipleship to Jesus. I would say the immature, the undeveloped Christian or follower of Jesus believes themselves to be above this list. They believe themselves to be so self-righteous and so self-pious that they never struggle with anything on this list. Whereas I believe the mature Christian finds themselves at God's mercy. They know for themselves that they struggle just as much as the next person with anything on this list. And they know themselves to be just as susceptible to these distractions. The mature Christian understands faith is not just a composition of adjusting behavior and hopefully God likes me. It's understanding, no, God loves me and I, I'm at his mercy. I, I am no better than the person on the street who's high out of their mind. I, I am no better than the person in the pride parade. I, I am no better than the atheist philosopher professor. It could have been me at any moment of my life in that moment. The mature Christian understands this. That is not their self-piety or their gaining of knowledge that makes them better than anybody else. But it's God's mercy and mark on their life that sets them apart. And for us, this is where we need to understand and lean in. That I do believe actions do matter. I do not believe in cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call it, that we just take advantage of God's goodness and mercy time and time again, but that we, want, that we step and live fully into the vision God has for humanity. Not I believe life is better when we live into this vision for humanity. And we all know that it only takes someone so much time to be told to do right and wrong with little to no reasoning or alternative and so people are unmotivated to keep pursuing what's quote-unquote right. 
in the 80s, uh, there was known as what was called the crack epidemic. Crack and cocaine just broke out all over America. It was infiltrating um, lower income neighborhoods and just wrecking communities. And Ronald Reagan, with his wife, started a campaign to kind of push back against this drug epidemic. And all they simply did was got on TV and said, just say no to drugs. They would get on TV, specifically Ronald Reagan's wife, and just say, say no to drugs. This produced different movements called D.A.R.E. I don't know if you remember D.A.R.E. if you grew up in the early 2000s. Okay, like not wearing D.A.R.E. shirts is cool. I don't understand. But um, it, D.A.R.E. is D.A.R.E. to resist drugs and violence. And I understand the sentiment of, you know, being told, don't do this bad thing. This bad thing is really bad for you, so don't do it. Okay, kid? All right? Um, doesn't matter, you know. And then I'm just going on a tangent right now. But I remember, like, firefighters would show up to the school, and they'd be like, if a, if a man with a trench coat offers you candy, what do you say? It's like, that was just such a weird scenario. It's like, I'm in third grade, sir. You gave me candy before I came here. What is going on? There's a contradiction and paradox here. But you may ask the question. What's wrong with a little distraction? Why not trust the distraction? Why not live a life of overindulgence? Why not? If all we can come up with and summarize as why not to do it is it's bad. It's going to be hard to maintain a lifestyle around that. I think the words of the French libertinism philosopher Marcus de Sade Resonates well here. We are no guiltier in following the primitive impulses that govern us than is the Nile for her floods or the sea for her waves. This is the sentiment of our day and age. People are just people. They want to do what they want. If it makes them happy, don't hinder them. They're not hurting anybody, whatever. That, that's the summary of secular culture, whatever. It's not hurting anybody. So why not overindulge? Why not take part in the distraction? Apart from statistical evidence that cites that a life of overindulgence actually hinders a person long term and lowers their dopamine receptors and um, different abilities to connect to other people, I do believe that the perspective of Jesus, that he has a vision for our lives, a vision that is so much more beautiful and bigger and fuller than the simple list of petty distractions. No, you can't just say no to whatever thing. You, you can't just simply say, no, your willpower will run out. You need an alternate vision for your life to combat the current struggle you're facing. See, even secular organizations understand this. Secular organizations such as AA or Celebrate Recovery, when taking in addicts of alcohol or different substances, understand that when facing an addiction, when facing a cycle, these Addicts need to supplement or replace what they were addicted to before with something healthier and better. And that to be helped, they actually need to replace what they were doing and have a better vision for who they are and what they want to become. A, a more compelling story to believe in is available to us. This is the good news. That God does not drop golden tablets from the sky telling you what to do, what not to do, and hopefully you make it out alive. But he has crafted through the person of Jesus a beautiful vision for what it means to be human. There's good news. There's a better way, my friends. There is a better way. What is that story? I believe that story is encapsulated in verses 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. I've never met a person who wants less of any of these things in their life. Never met a person. Doesn't matter what they believe, what country they come from, what ethnicity they are, what social class they're ranking economically. Everybody wants some of this list. This is a good list, okay? A lot better than orgies. I can just say that, okay? Self-control is good. Gentleness, love, peace, joy, patience, kindness. These are good qualities. But why are they so difficult to acquire in the life of a believer, let alone a non-believer? Why are these things feeling so uncomprehensibly out of our reach? I don't know if you had this experience in high school, um, but all of a sudden, transitioning from 8th to ninth grade, my skin just decided to freak out. I started having acne all over my face, and my baby skin was gone. It was like the last time I was cute in my life. Really sad, right? But I just had acne galore. I didn't know what to do. Um, I was watching, like, proactive commercials with, like, Adam Levine. Like, oh, I guess that works. Okay. Uh, <laughs> he's canceled. But I remember having this terrible acne and just being super frustrated because everybody had different advice. Everybody's like, no, 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 you need to change your skincare regimen. You need to wash your face with cold in the morning, hot in the evening. You take less showers. You need to do Neutrogena, not this. Everybody had a different regimen. It was, no, 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 it's what you're eating. You need to stop eating this. You need to eat that, just celery and water. Um, it was, you need to get in the sun more. Actually, you need to spend less time in the sun. It was, oh, no, you're sweating too much. No, you need to sweat more. Everybody had a different pathway on the path to clear skin, okay? And Adam Levine's didn't work, okay, just to say that. And I wonder if you can relate with frustrated ninth grade Nick in his acne skin complexion situation when it comes to acquiring the fruits of the Spirit. When it comes to acquiring more of these aspects in your life and your faith to Jesus, I wonder if you're frustrated. I wonder if you have been fighting and seeking after different methods and ways and tactics to get these things into your life that you maybe have watched YouTube videos, that you maybe have just done comprehensive Bible studies, that you're attending small group after small group to try to acquire more of this in your life. And it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what you seek after or what you chase down or what you know, you feel that you'll always struggle with self-control and you'll never be able to not have a porn addiction. You feel like you will always have low-grade anxiety, unable to embrace peace. You feel like you will always battle fits of rage, unable to be patient. You will always have persistent depression that hinders your joy and enjoyment of life. And you've begun to accept that this is just the way it is. That maybe these fruits of the spirit, maybe this is more allegorical, maybe this is more of a concept, maybe this is more just an idea. Maybe it's not something that can be true for me in my life. See, freshman year Nick was trying a different acne medication every day, feeling like nothing worked, feeling stuck, and feeling frustrated. Many of us would describe our relationship to Jesus to be in that place tonight. But pay attention to the word prior to this description, fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit. Um, Sky's currently growing a garden, and she's just killing it, to be honest. Um, and I, I have not kept track of it at all, okay? Not my vibe. It's hers, right? But um, she's been loving it. And all I remember is going to Lowe's, picking up some stuff, and then, like, now all of a sudden there's, like, 
20 melons in the backyard, like hanging off branches. There's like all these zinnias. I don't even know what a zinnia is, but it's growing back there. Okay, we thought it was a bell pepper. Who knows, right? There's just like stuff growing everywhere. And I was like, wow, that was really quick. And she's like, you have no idea what I've been doing back here, do you? (laughs) She's like, there's been blood and sweat and tears. You have no idea how long it's taken me to produce this one little watermelon that I just want to make some jelly out of. You have no clue. I just roll in saying, oh, man, that's sick. But she's been out there day and night watering these things. She's been fighting against mice, trying to bite off her stems. She's been fighting, like, little caterpillars, like, chucking them into the front yard because they keep getting in there. She's been fighting off our dogs, eating everything. And it seems like everything is against her efforts. Everything. But she has been diligent and patient. And over many months of careful attentiveness and some obedience, there's now fruit producing in our backyard that we get to enjoy. See, fruit is the long-term byproduct of diligence and obedience over an extended period of time to a dedicated task. Say that one more time. Fruit is the long-term byproduct of diligence and obedience over an extended period of time to a dedicated task. See, the fruit of a vine, anything that is enjoyable, is the result of a gardener diligently attending to it. Scholar's fruit has done well because she's paid close attention to it. Now, before you place yourself in this moment as the gardener of your story, of what is being produced in your life, I have to tell you, you are not the gardener of the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruits of the Spirit. It's not the fruits of, dang, you did really good in your quiet time this morning. Here's five bucks, spiritually, okay? It's not the fruits of human effort, Who is the gardener, then, of the fruits of the Spirit? Well, apart from Holy Spirit, I believe Jesus is. And he tells us this in John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How does a vine or a plant bear fruit successfully? Well, if you do any kind of reading on what it means to plant something and grow it, it's all about climate and environment. Fruit goes really well in humid climates because it needs a lot of water. Vegetables tend to do better in cooler ones because they get welted by the sun. Fruits of the Spirit grow best in environments that reflect the life of Jesus the most. Fruits of the Spirit grow best in environments that reflect the life of Jesus the most. If you want to summarize the heart and call of Jesus on your life, it's this. Humility and simplicity. Humility and simplicity. What is this vision for our life? What is this grandiose idea God has as an alternative to these different desires of the flesh? It's humility and simplicity. If Jesus is our gardener, we need to mirror his heart and desire. In one time in Matthew chapter 11, God expresses, Jesus expresses his heart posture. It's this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. Gentle and humble in heart. Here's how Eugene Peterson 
rephrase that in the message translation. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. If you want to summarize fruits of the Spirit, it's just the characteristics and character of Jesus. All of these things are who Jesus was and what he embodied in his day-to-day life. This is why Paul concludes with this moment, verse 24 to 26. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, mimicking Jesus. If we live by the Spirit, like Jesus did, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We are able, my friends, to inherit these same characteristics because Jesus modeled them for us, not only as our Savior, but as as our example of what it means to be tethered to the Father. And when you look at the life of Jesus, He always placed himself in environments that bolstered and helped the voice of the Father in his life. Are you and I placing ourselves in environments that hinder or help humility and simplicity? Or are we placing ourselves in contexts and situations that are making life complex, producing pride in us, making things harder than they need to be? Because our environments where we place ourselves, what we surround ourselves with, directly feed into our desires. And before attempting to simply modify our behavior, we have to consider what we're being distracted from, and we have to understand that there is a better way. Behavioral modification, simply adjusting your action with little to no vision won't work. And once we understand that there's a better vision for our life, in order to get that and become like Jesus, We must, it requires of us to embrace humility and simplicity in our lives. I want you to take a moment with me. Maybe close your eyes, whatever you feel like. And just imagine a day. It could be, yeah, Aaron, right? Imagine a day. Imagine a day. It could be this week, maybe your Monday tomorrow. And it's a day full of no striving. No backbiting, no sarcasm, no cynicism. It's a day free of anxiety. It's a day free of depressive, suicidal thoughts. It's a day free of not being able to control yourself. It's a day free of these things. A day full of joy. A day full of patience. A day full of the Holy Spirit. Not a day full of self-gratification. I imagine that that day for you, it feels pretty good. It it feels like something you've longed for. It feels like something you've desired. It feels like something you may have been praying for as long as you've been saved. See, where there is freedom is being aware of God's presence at all times of the day. Freedom is where the presence of the Lord is. 
don't know if you're aware of this. God's omnipresent. It's pretty good news. God's available all times in our day to be available to us. To, to help us out of those environments that aren't fostering humility and simplicity. To help us to rely on him. Maybe you don't know how to pray. Maybe you don't know what it looks like to have more of God in your life. To have more of Jesus and who he is in your character. You can start this way. Jesus, help be in your car right before you get to work. Jesus, help me. I can't do this on my own. I need you, Lord. That's it. You don't need to know how to speak Latin. You don't need to know the original Greek. It could just be a cry out to the Father. I need you right now. We are capable of being tethered to him. Not vying for attention. Not, not struggling in pretension of what people think of us. We can live fully into the plan he has for us on this side of heaven. It won't be perfect. There's going to be struggle. There's going to be strife. There's going to be difficulty. But there's an ability for us to step into this humility and this simplicity. To be people of life not being dictated by how hard it is or how prideful we are or how much we've attained, but how good God is and how abundant his mercy is and available to us. Life is hard. In response, we distract. And these distractions, they hinder the better way Jesus has for you to die. Jesus has mapped out a better life. It's really up to us. Are we going to accept his better way or not? Let's stand and pray. Father, you're so faithful. Lord, I sense in the room tonight that there's a little bit of, yeah, and, but Lord, there's, there's a little bit of, if you only knew my situation, if you only understood what I was going through, if you only understood what happened in my childhood. And Father, I pray over my friends in this space tonight who are, who are battling with doubt, who, who may be on the border of disbelief. That, Lord, when Thomas doubted, you showed him who you were. God, we just pray tonight for a taste of who you are. Holy Spirit, come. We just pray that you, you show us where you are tonight. God, you're already everywhere. You're already doing amazing things. You already stepped into the human existence. We don't introduce anything new to the table. You've already done it. Lord, help us to have the scales fall off our eyes like that blind man. And help us to see to see you, Father. To not see our struggle. To not see the cycles of pain we keep putting ourselves through. The cycles of frustration that we've been subjected to through our trauma and our abuse. But Father, help us to accept the yoke of your easiness and your way of life of humility and simplicity, Father. Holy Spirit, come. I pray this in your name. Amen. Let's worship.